Welcome to 15 Minutes of Mental Toughness with your host, Dr. Rob Bell. Dr. Rob interviews expert coaches, executives, and athletes about mental toughness and their hinge moments. The hinge. It connects who we are with who we've become, and it only takes one. And now for your host, Dr. Rob. If you've got a range of outcomes of, of uh, you know, a normal distribution curve of your scores, the highest 25% of your scores, 90% of those are you quitting. You quitting, you getting frustrated, you trying to force things, you're a scratch handicap, you're three over through six because of some unforeseen error, and now you've got to get it back to, to even, so you try to force it and now you're seven over and now you're just like, screw it and just completely mailed around. And that basically is the worst 25% of your scores. And if we can get that to just stop, your scoring average by definition will improve 20%. Hey, this is Dr. Rob Bell. If you want a free ebook, the best mental toughness quotes that will make you better, just text Dr. Rob Bell, that's D-R-R-O-B-B-E-L-L to this number. Three three four four four. You'll get a download right away. Our guest today on Fifteen Minutes of Mental Toughness. Uh, he's a former golfer at Texas A&M, and so he played pro golf for a few years. And then, with anyone who struggles with it, they they give up the game for a while. Started his own company, but at the age of thirty-five, he made it. Came back and made it through all four stages of Q School, which. Is freaking awesome, man. I mean, you know, just that alone, you know. the uh, He's a creator of a decade golf system, all right, whose stat tool and portal and system, I mean, I think it's transformed the game of golf to make better players at all levels. PGA Tour winners, LPGA winners, Mini Tour, Champions Tour, NCAA Champions. I mean, like I said, all levels. Now, decade golf, right, distance, expectation, Correct target, analyze, discipline, and execute. We might go through all those today, but uh, I'm, I'm excited to have our guest on today. And I think one of the golfers, well, I'm going to introduce him first, and then one of the golfers who's probably been the most consistent on tour that nobody's talking about, we're going to start with that. But our guest today is Scott Fawcett. <laughs> Scott, thanks so much for uh, for joining us, man. You got it. I really do enjoy these conversations. They're always uh, really fun to be a part of. Well, let's talk about, let's start with the most consistent golfer on tour right now that no one's talking about. Let's talk about Will. I mean, talk about your relationship with him. I mean, he just won on the Corn Ferry Tour, but but his consistency has been absolutely amazing, man. Go ahead and tell us that Tell us that background. It's been, honestly, so Will, they moved from San Francisco to Dallas back when Will was probably about eight or nine years old. Zalatoris, sorry, man. Will Zalatoris, yeah. So that's 14 years ago. So literally it's 2006 or seven ish and that's, as you said, in 2008, I entered Q School as a 35-year-old amateur. And so this whole year, so Will should be turning 23 or 4, I believe, uh, later in, in next month. And so when he was just a young man, he moves out to Bent Tree. And so I, at the time, I decided I was going to take a full year off and just basically play professional amateur golf. And so as a result, I got to see this young kid out there who, I mean, you could just tell at nine, like, this kid's swing. It, it's it's exactly the same now. And he's, you know, obviously a Corn Ferry Tour winner. This kid just had it from a from a swing standpoint. He qualified for the U.S. Junior at the age of 12, which I think he's like the second or third youngest kid to ever qualify for it. He, uh, he played with Patrick Cantley. I'm pretty sure it was the first two rounds. And he shot 71 and was in like 10th place as a 12-year-old and then shot 87 in the second round. And it's just amazing to watch this kid. He then qualified at 13, 14, 15. And, and to just watch him, he, he started struggling a bit with his putting. And to just watch this young man have the grit, you know, and, and I, I do hate it when people talk about, well, I love this guy because he works hard. Everybody, you know, so many people work hard. It's, it's, it's not fair to those who work hard and don't get the success to, to attribute it to, to Will's work ethic. A lot of people work hard. But just watching this kid essentially beat his head into a brick wall for five years. You know, luckily, when I created Decade then after getting my owner status back again in 2013, uh, you know, Will and I at that point now, he's a 17 year old high, high school graduate on his way to Wake Forest. 
And so just getting to kind of mentor that guy for a couple of years, but then catting for him when he won the Texas Amateur and U.S. Junior in 2014, it just was really, again, just I saw a lot of myself in him, a, a young person with quite a bit of promise that really never had the results um, that I feel like my game should have had. And then he essentially was in that box, too. But just to get to spend a lot of time with him and see how, you know, just strategy and psychology, expectation management really is what transformed his game from struggling junior to, at this point now, PGA Tour member. I mean, it's a crazy six years, yeah. really. And I mean, even with, because every commercial when it comes to golf, right, like always starts out the same, hey, do you want to play more consistent? Like a consistent golfer is the most difficult I think realm to achieve and this guy, man, I mean, he's top five and then win and basically calling his shot. Like, Hey, the win, the win is coming. And then bam, next week, like he wins. Well, and I started to post that I was going back through some Twitter stuff last night as I was derailing with, with laying up. But as I was going back through that, I saw what he had posted after finishing third or fourth, whatever it was last week, where, I mean, he hit a putt that is just how it stayed out. It's incredible to get into a playoff. And just, again, just like not nothing other than, man, that was close. I'm just, I got to just keep doing what I'm doing. And, and that, that win is coming. And, and again, you really have to be able to just, well, that week's over. Nothing we can do about it now. Let's move on and see what TPC Colorado has in store for us, which is just, it's just, an, it, it really is an impossible thing to do to just move on. It's, that's the hardest part of this game. Yeah. Yeah. No question, man. Now, I mean, you know, I got to follow you online, which I think most people probably get introduced to you um, that way. You know, but the the persona, I didn't get to really know you. You know, I spoke with Virgil Herring and, you know, I, I follow you through Jeff Smith and both guys I respect and, you know, start following you. But then we meet at a PJ Tour event, Scottsdale. Mm-hmm. And then right away when I met you, I'm like, great, man, finally, I want to meet this guy because um, I think that's the only way that we can really get to – you know, understand people is just, you know, face to face or, you know, phone, but that, that conversation we have to have. And I was curious about hole number three, because I was having the conversation with a couple of my players on how to play hole three there at TPC Scottsdale. Uh-huh. And I got to ask you and you were so, so nice, man. So friendly. You sent me the whole book saying, Hey man, here's, here's all the stats from it. And uh, I don't even remember that conversation, man, but it really like left a great impression with me. I don't, but it, I was opening Scottsdale here to see what number three actually was. I thought you were going to go into that. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I agree. And it's it's honestly just like for the casual viewer, you know, obviously most of these uh, podcasts are just done, you know, in audio or in person. And as we were talking just to begin with, my new internet in my new house here was being a little dicey. And I was talking about shutting off my video. And Rob's like, you know, these conversations just work better with video, which it's true. You get to see inflection and mannerisms and, and everything. And that's just all lost, obviously, on social media, which is just unfortunate because, again, 90% of disagreements are either semantics or, I mean, if it's just a, an actual disagreement, it kind of is what it is. But so much of the arguing stems from just a lack of that, you know, as humans, we're social beings and learning, you know, all the the, the, the manners and the inflection. Hey, that was kind of a joke. You can't really, even with a, an emoji, can't really convey. And, and right. like I was saying before we started, I, I really do think that ultimately that's the downfall of our society. I really think that we're in for a long, tough road as kids who are now growing up. It's all they know is, <laughs> is conversation without, you know, the rest of the references. Yeah. The, I'm, I'm a big proponent of like, if we focus on the differences between us and between people. If we focus on the differences, then the differences are going to get wider and wider because then we show, hey, I'm not like that person. You know, They're not like me. They don't know where I'm coming from. If we could get possible and focus on the similarities, and that's all we focus on, how am I similar to that person? I think that's when we personalize relationships. I think that's how we just get closer as a society because I guess I lead with that because we hear it all the time. Like, you know, fail and fail and fail again. And I'm a big believer in that, right? Like puke and rally. It's just a new book came out. And, but the thing is, and the reality is this is like, you can't fail nowadays. Cause if you fail, if you wear a t-shirt and make a bad mistake, well that you are raked over the coals. I mean, not just there, but I mean, forever, man, it's like branded. So I think there's a huge failure aversion that makes total sense in, in people's uh, lives and performance nowadays. Well, and that's what Sam Harris talks a lot about is just with the cancel culture, 
Um, you know, nobody has a, a, and there's nowhere that you can grow and learn as a person. If you say one thing wrong, then that's just kind of who you are for life. And luckily for me, I've never had a racist or bone in my body, but some kids can make, can just post the, the wrong stupid thing and it just impacts them forever. Or they just do something. I, I, I don't know what the 3% thing is at all, but I saw something on TMZ, I believe, where some college guy, he had American flags and, and all these like patriotic sayings. And then one of them was a 3% logo, which apparently is kind of a, a, a white power thing that he says, now whether it's true or not, who knows, but that he said that he got this in high school because he was trying to be patriotic, ignorantly without even knowing really what it stood for. And that's a very damaging example because now you've got it on your body for life. But a, a subtler version of that is people just don't have a, a way to, you know, a place to safely learn and grow as humans. I mean, shit, if, if, if everything that I ever did as a kid in, in drunken stupidity were posted for the world to see, it wouldn't be good. And I'm yeah. sure that everybody is pretty similar. If you really are honest with yourself, we're, you know, we're all flawed humans. And, and unfortunately there's just no room for anything other than animosity, but it's like what you were talking about saying, you know, just, you know, it's, it's kind of a debate and a sales tactic of trying to find some common ground to then pull at that thread to show a little unity and then slowly start trying to tackle the harder things. And unfortunately with the, the, the voice that social media gives the five or 10% on the far right and on the far left, it makes it seem like that's really the view of, of everyone. And that's where I first got in trouble arguing on Twitter with golf course architects was I didn't really realize that there are people who don't care about scores, that they only care about the majesty of the beauty of the golf course and the terrain. And like, that's just not my gig. I, but I now realize there are five or 10% of golfers that that is their passion. And now I'm like, okay, whatever, that's your deal. I, it doesn't, it's not my deal but you go for it. And there's no reason for us all to love golf. Like there's just no reason to argue along these lines. The similar nature would then be to society of Democrats, Republicans. At the end of the day, I hope even the far extreme cases just want a good country, a good place to live. Let's start there and then figure out where to, where to go from there. Yeah. You know, I learned when I was married that I can be right or I can be happy. You know, yeah. and I think that's the problem we run into. And it's like, you know, we just get labels that get thrown around. And, and this isn't how I saw the conversation going, man. But I mean, I, I'm glad mm -hmm. we addressed it. But it's like, you know, if, if someone's labeled as a Christian, then that automatically means, right, that I'm anti-homosexual. Yeah. And and I'll, I'll get in arguments with people like, you know, well, if I'm a Christian, that means I'm on the right. And that's totally not, that's not true. Like, I'm... I'm a big believer, man. I just love everybody, you know, and what anybody wants to do is fine with me. Yeah. You know, as long as it doesn't infringe and hurt anybody else, it's perfectly cool with me. Um, but it's like once we throw out those labels, then you get pigeonholed into being that. And that's the part that really gets difficult as well. Well, in a society is essentially a giant insurance company. It is a collective of people who are in theory looking out for the greater good of everyone. And we have totally lost that in our consumption, me first society. And, and the idea that, I mean, again, without going into too much politics, the idea of, of universal health care, there's just certain things where like, it's just, it, it's, it appears as though if you're on the right, that you're against everyone having health care. Like, that's not, I don't think there's probably anybody who'd be like, well, that guy, is, he doesn't have any money. He just has to be sick. Like, I don't think that's anyone's view. But now everyone just has to dig in and, and just not even listen to the, the opposition's thought processes. It's, it's really a, a, a very toxic uh, culture as a result. Because, again, insurance, I don't think, I mean, I haven't gotten a car wreck in a long time. I don't think I'm going to get in a car today. I don't need car insurance. I don't drive much. But I buy it because... That's what we do as a collective to protect everyone. Yeah. If I didn't, just because I think I'm a good driver, then that, why can't the guy who's actually a bad driver but thinks he's a good driver go without it? The same thing really applies to 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 government, I mean, and, and taxes and just everything. Like, we're in this together, but we're not at this moment in time, unfortunately. Yeah. So, you know, back to 
back to golf, man, back a decade. You know, I mean, you, you talked about, and I love this line that you've said, you know, hitting a golf ball is more like shooting a shotgun over a, over a sniper rifle, right? Yeah. Talk, talk to us about that, man. How does that one then translate into the game? Well, the key about this is, you know, and anyone can just go to their driving range today and just get loose and grab your seven iron and have a target and hit it at it. And guess what? You're not going to hit it at it. I mean, that's the craziest part about it. And even if you had a magical golf ball launching cannon, golf is the largest sport played outdoors with the ball in the air the longest over the longest spans of any sport in the world. Just the subtle variation in wind would even take that golf ball launching cannon and make it into a shotgun. And so the, the real key is if I'm aiming at a target, I don't know if the shot that's 10 yards right, 10 yards left, or actually directly at it, I don't know which one is actually gonna come off next. And so as a result, proper strategy, again, it, it's interesting, golf really, it's, it's the least math gamey sport of them all, but it is just nothing more than a giant math game. At the end of the day, we all know that chess, backgammon, these are actually math games, even though they're, they don't explicitly seem like it, they are. Golf is no difference. It's expectation. You have a range of possible outcomes, which is your shot pattern, that shotgun blast, and you have a re range of remaining expectations. And then you can just do a weighted average, a very basic weighted average math problem and come up with an optimum target. And, and the idea then is just you have this shotgun that, again, on the PGA Tour off the tee, it's 70 yards wide or more with the driver. And so great golf course architecture actually you're just not going to get a hole on a good course that has 40 yards between lakes you know on a 406 yard hole it just doesn't happen architects intuitively whether it's you know you know they've done it intentionally or just out of experience for the most part they give you the right amount of room and that's because they know you've got this shotgun blast and the real key then is like i say is just you don't know which shot is coming off next period yeah you know one of the things and I got this from Boo Weekly just in, man, when I was first out there on tour, I mean, it was like 2006, right? Like, and talk with him. And I always love this quote because he said the center of the green never moves, right? And this was when he was playing well. And your, your philosophy is different, though. You don't start from the middle. You start from the edge, which I think is still better. Can you talk us through that, man? How does that work so starting from the edge? The real key to course management, because, you know, I'll definitely get people from time to time be like, I'm making this way more complicated than it is. And I don't disagree with that if you're playing on a golf course with extraordinarily average greens. But you know, by definition, that's not what happens, you know, 30 plus percent of the time. You'll, you'll have a lot of really big greens and a lot of really small greens. And so talking about the middle of the green doesn't change. That's a fact. But the middle of the green on number 18 at St. Andrews, where the green is 52 yards wide, it's a little bit different than the middle of the green on number 10 at Pebble Beach, where the middle of that, that green is 17 yards wide. And so what I do is if we know this shotgun blast is a certain size, again, without getting too mathy, but a standard deviation of directional and distance control, essentially the size of your shot pattern. If I know how big that is, and I know how big a green is, I need to start working from the edge of the green because middle of the green quite often is just as bad of advice as right at the pin because now you've made all of your birdie putts longer for no real reason. If you've got a sandwich in your hand, yeah, you should probably be aiming for the most part kind of right at the pin unless it's up against a water hazard, just, you know, whatever. But you really, because of the non-uniformity of course design, again, it's not only the largest outdoor sport in the world, but it's the only sport in the world that's not played on a uniform court. Baseball has different length outfields, but it's still the same distance to first base. It's still the same distance to the pitcher's mound. You know, the, the great Hoosier scene where it's 15 feet to the free throw line and the rim's 10 feet tall, just like their, their basketball court back in Hickory when they, when they finally get to Indianapolis. Golf isn't like that. And to add to that problem, golf is really the only sport in the world that's not practiced and taught on the field of competition. It's, I, I joke about it all the time saying I don't want everyone to leave my seminar with their you know, teeth kicked in, but essentially golf is the hardest sport in the world to learn to play correctly. And conveniently, it's pretty much one of the few sports people do play for life. So we get to just be frustrated for the duration of life. And, and that's ultimately what I think decade has, has done in using Mark Brody's data and the PGA tour data. And then my, 
you know, I've got finance and econ and stats degrees. I'm pretty good with math and logic and numbers, taking all of Mark's data and then combining it with my experience as a professional golfer and, you know, the, the right uh, educated person to put it all together. And then as we were talking before, and I was a total lunatic prior, you know, in my twenties playing professionally, I've just sadly got the perfect background to kind of crack the code mainly because I was a lunatic and that's a large part of what golf, bad golf scores are. If you've got a range of outcomes of, of uh, you know, a normal distribution curve of your scores, the highest 25% of your scores, 90% of those are you quitting. You quitting, you getting frustrated, you trying to force things, you're a scratch handicap, you're three over through six because of some unforeseen error and now you've got to get it back to to even, so you try to force it and now you're seven over and now you're just like, screw it and just completely mailed around. And that basically is the worst 25% of your scores. And if we can get that to just stop, your scoring average by definition will improve 20%. So how, do, how does the management system, how does it take the emotion out of, out of competing? This is where it's, it's so interesting because you can't make an, uh, a beyond optimal decision. <laughs> optimal is optimal. Emotion, you might be able to make an optimal decision while being emotional, but for the most part, emotion breeds panic, panic breeds bad decisions. And the, the, the just the cold, hard data and facts of shot patterns and scoring expectations, in my opinion, if done correctly, it totally removes emotion from decision-making. There's and a TV announcer who won on the PGA tour that he and I've had some disagreements via text about this. Cause he says, you know, I played better when I played emotionally and that, that, that wouldn't be, you didn't play better because of the emotion you played worse on average because you didn't have the intensity or the focus or whatever you're considering emotion. That's what I would say. It's not that the, the maybe emotion just actually let him operate correctly but for the most part, people play worse because of emotion. And so just if the scoring average is 2.8 from 100 yards in the fairway on the PGA Tour, I could sit there in the fairway at 100 yards and bet every single person that they're going to make par and become really rich really quick. And, and that's where when someone hits it to 20 feet and then two putt it, they walk off the green steamed. I'm like, it's just not that big of a deal. You basically are going to score on the par fives and then you're trying to not give it back on the par threes and fours. Right. That's basically how golf works. Hey, this is Dr. Rob Bell. Our new book, Puke and Rally. It's not about the setback, it's about the comeback. It can be bought anywhere books are sold or go to the website pukeandrallybook.com. I, I'm a big believer in, you know, and like you said, I mean, with the emotion, it, it gets back to our focus. You know, if our focus becomes outward on what we're trying to do and it gets so honed in like that, that's a good thing. The emotion, what I see a lot of times is sometimes then it gets turned inward and anger turned outward sometimes is focus, but anger turned inward, man, is depression. It's like, you know, in the movie Hunt for Red October, you know, you shoot out that torpedo and you're going to hit yourself because of you, you get down, you know, you get angry, man. hundred percent. Um, let me ask you this one. What, what are the best metrics, um, to evaluate in our game? And I know it probably varies, but what do you think are the best from a statistics standpoint? Yeah. Well, this is what's interesting. Like what Mark Brody did with strokes gained again, the guy's an Ivy league business school professor. He's really smart and really good with math. I never would have thought to say greens and regulation. You know, people ask me, what's the most important strat to track? You know, what's the most correlated to score? I used to answer, well, greens and regulation. And Mark and I were then having a discussion one time. He's like, the problem with greens and regulation is if you tell me how many greens and regulation you hit, because it's so correlated to score, I can basically tell you what your scoring average is. So it's actually a totally irrelevant stat. And I'm like, that's brilliant. Like I never really thought about it. These, these stats that are perfectly correlated to score really don't tell us much. You know, if your greens and regulation is 50%, you're probably not scoring very well right now. It's the combination of a few categories, greens and regulation, 
proximity penalty rates that the product of that is strokes gained approach or strokes gained off the tee. And so any, any metric on its own, and this is why there's, there's a few stats like fairways hit in the decade stats portal. It says not comparative as opposed to giving you a, a, a red X if you're underperforming against your peer group or a green check, if you're outperforming your peer group, it just says it's not comparative. And people ask me probably at least once a day, say, hey, new member here, I saw my stats and there's like seven or eight categories. Proximity is one of them that says not comparative. How's that? And I'm like, because that stat on its own doesn't tell me anything. If you're hitting 53% of your fairways, that might be world class, Dustin Johnson. If you're hitting 53% of your fairways and you're Zach Blair, that's probably a big problem. And so I can hit 100% of my fairways hitting seven iron off the tee, but that's not a good idea. As Bryson just illustrated this last weekend, if you can bomb it and hit about 50% of your fairways, you're going to do really, really, really well, as long as your penalty rate's not too high. Go back last week to um, wherever they were, uh, TPC River Highlands, and his penalty rate was too high. He hit it out of bounds on 13, the par 5, and he hit it in the water once on 13, the par 5. He lost by a couple shots. Those combinations of fairways, distance, and penalty shots weren't good for him last week. They were good for him this week. Same thing with the players uh, last year when that one happened. Yeah, 100%. Well, I mean, it's just the same thing every week. I mean, DJ, once he put a little curve on the driver, his fairways didn't go up. He hit the same amount of fairways year over year, but his strokes gained off the tee improved materially, and that was because he finally you know, stopped having the double cross kind of outlier and his penalty rate was, was just way too high for his talent level. And that's one of the main things he was able to shift without getting better at golf. He just got a more a better understanding of his shot pattern and then was able to apply that to course architecture better. And as a result, has become, you know, one of the best players in the world. What do you think is the least important uh, metric or statistic? That's a good question. Um, all of them in isolation. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, to be perfectly honest, that, there's just no stat that tells us very much on its own. You know, things like, uh, you know, like the putts, uh, putts per green and regulation, that would be terrible. The PGA Tour, and again, like I, and I try not to make them mad because I don't want them to, to give me a hard time, but the, you know, PGA Tour's proximity, people talk about all the time. And they, someone just did it this last week, and I don't know how such and such, oh, Henrik Stenson, how he led in strokes gained approach some year, but he was 125th in proximity. The reason that is the case is because he hit a ton of greens. And so proximity doesn't really matter. But the main point proximity doesn't matter is the PGA Tour, once your ball gets within 30 yards of the edge of the green, that's considered your proximity number. And so on a par five, Zach Johnson can't get there in two. So he hits two shots to 60 yards, 70 yards, and then hits a 60 degree to eight feet. That's his proximity for that hole. Rory McIlroy hits a good drive on a 590 yard par four and then hits a, a par five rather, and then hits a hybrid up there 15 yards short of the green and is 120 feet from the pin. That's his proximity. And he gets that two or three times around compared to, I haven't even looked, I bet you Bryson's proximity this week was horrific because just in going through it quickly last week, his, he, 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 last night rather, I'm gonna, I'm actually gonna open this real quick. I'm gonna, oh, I'll just shut you down, hold on. I'm gonna get this thing opening shot link because I think this is gonna be an interesting question to add on to here in a second. But he drove it up close to so many greens last week that his proximity is probably horrific because it was his drive. <laughs> like all, all total proximity tells us is that Zach Johnson can hit his hybrid or his, his lob wedge rather closer than, than Bryson can hit his driver. It, it, it really is not only useless, but it's really, it, it just, it, it's counterproductive even. Yeah. I've always looked at, uh, when I was, um, newly professor doing some research i found to be bounce back the most useless stat because it says nothing about all, all it's saying is the the importance of one hole followed by another hole geek you can make birdie a couple holes later like it doesn't matter when it happens but uh, i always found bounce back to be pointless but importantly 
if somebody thinks bounce back is is important when they make a bogey it's entirely possible they go out and, and play the next hole more aggressively to get it back i would actually contend that if your bounce back is higher than your materially higher than your your average birdie rate it's probably a really bad sign but if you think about bounce back usually you're making bogeys on the harder holes so out of out of 18 holes you're probably not bogeying the par fives on average so it's it's more likely the hole following a bogey is a par 5 than the hole you bogeyed is a par 5 so in theory your bounce back should actually by the strictest mathematical definition be a little higher and that's the reason i used the word materially higher a second ago if it's materially like that can be factored in that can be controlled for but if it's like eight percent higher you're probably playing too aggressive and it's also probably just variance <laughs> sample size and variance but uh i totally agree that and it really gets people playing incorrectly yeah more than any other stat probably so scott you talked about you being a lunatic back when you were playing um like how do how do players manage the mental setbacks then while while competing? That's a great question. And to be perfectly honest, I think that the main thing that I really try to 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 get players to do, again, that we talked about earlier, is this idea of meditation. I think that ideally you just move on, which that's not that's not very constructive uh, advice. We'll just get over it. And if you are incapable of doing that, I do believe that that having a meditation routine, a meditation practice, and if you just can't stop ruminating and dwelling on on an idea, that's the time to meditate. Just zone out for 20 seconds. I mean, Sam, again, Sam Harris has got a great thing. He's like, just even just a millisecond or two between uh, stimulus and response can make all the difference in the world. And especially when you're talking to somebody, because you can say something wrong really quick that you can't unsay no matter how much you apologize and try to. There's certain things that just can't be unsaid or untweeted or whatever. And that meditation routine, again, like you said, I really was a lunatic in my 20s. I was 100% the hottest head on the mini tours period. And probably like, I've probably set a record as the goat of, of, of hot headery. That said, I, as I'm now 46, so it could just be age, maturity, less testosterone. I'm not out there worrying about being broke. That might be it. Or it might be the fact that I've really put a lot of work into, to, to bettering myself. And a lot of that comes down to a, a, a meditation routine. And not only is, is that important for moving on? But it's just, it's just, it, it is the zone. When people used to talk about this zone being this elusive mystical state that we've all entered accidentally, I do believe at the end of the day, you just accidentally meditated. The first golf tournament I ever won, I shot 70 at the shores here in Rockwall, Texas. And my girlfriend, this is, it's embarrassing to admit, but as we talked earlier, I just, I just, this is my experience. My girlfriend broke up with me that weekend. It was when Poison Song, Every Rose Has Its Thorn first oh, came yeah. out. And I swear to God, I had it in my headset and was just sad listening to it on a Walkman the whole round. But it's just this long, meditative, slow song. I basically forced myself into an accidental meditation. And it's literally the first time I ever shot under part of a golf tournament, first golf tournament I ever won. Question for you, Scott. All right, what is a better song? Every Rose Has Its Thorn by Poison. This is a legit question, right? <laughs> or Wanted, Dead or Alive by Bon Jovi. That is an actually, that's an amazing question. That that video from Dead or Alive, I mean, it's uh, the life on the road. That's what we all dream of. I mean, again, like us as professional athletes, it is that dream of being out on the road and, and chasing the dream. And that's what they're doing. He's on that Learjet and he's tired, you know. He's singing the song that's kind of, what we want it's what we're chasing real quick because it just popped up and i don't know i think this is but you gotta you gotta, you gotta answer the question first what's all oh, you like better man? i'm gonna go poison i'm gonna go okay every rose has a thorn all right all right mainly because i didn't go i wasn't much of a bon jovi guy aside from that i'm i i, I as i've been yes every rose has its thorn for thorn for sure 
I've been pulling up the stats on this All other right. side, and I'm going to move this. I know that you said that we do some video, some not, and I've got this thing. This right here is ShotLink with Bryson, and when I scroll down, this right here, let me see if I can, this right here is his proximity, rank 70th. How many people made the cut last week? Yeah. 70. Bryson was dead last in proximity. And I swear to you, I did not know that before looking at that. I just like, I guarantee his proximity is horrific last week. It's fantastic, man. He's dead last. Yeah, I love it. Well, let's, let me ask that question then. You know, can players who don't overpower the golf ball, are they still going to be able to compete in the future? There's always going to be, again, it's a bell curve. Right. There's always going to be a shortest 25% of people. That number is just going to get, but it's not like, not somebody posted that they, they can see, actually there's a buddy of mine that tw texted it to me yesterday. This is a good player. He's won the Canadian mid-am. He texted me yesterday. He's like, I understand what he's doing is working, but I just am going to not, I'm not going to enjoy watching the PGA tour. If everybody has 195 mile an hour ball speed in, in 10 years. And I'm like, not everybody's going to what Bryson's doing right now is it's unbelievable to actually hit the driver. I mean, Jamie Slodowski, that dude's really, really, really good at golf. And he can't even make a cut on the corn Ferry tour. Right. He hits it a bazillion miles. It's so hard to have that kind of speed and just keep the driver on the play, but then to also be able to shut the speed down for wedges. What he's doing is absolutely mind boggling. And to think that he's going to, to destroy the game and have a, a you know a bunch of 200 mile an hour balls, no. But again, I just constantly bring up Zach Blair because most people know him as a tour player who bunts it. Zach's got a problem. Anyone who's that short, you can't. Again, like Nick Taylor, he's a guy that I've worked with. He just won at Pebble Beach with 112 or 13 club head speed, I believe is his. But he won at Pebble. Not the longest place out there. You can win the British. People always talk about Tom Watson almost winning the British. He's 60. He, he almost won at a place where length doesn't it, – it, it, it's important, but it's not the most important thing right. there. Intelligence is. And go, Tom's golf IQ obviously is off the charts. And so, man. Well, I was still, still rooting for him to hit wedge there. Oh, man. That, I mean, it's just that everything about that was just painful. Yeah. It really – yeah. Let, me, let me ask you a question and, and just to backtrack a little bit because you kind of talked about the meditation piece about, and again, referring to, you know, how do we get the emotion out of it competing and having that song that's going to be in your head. You know, one of the things I think that we see is, you know, with Webb and Paul always going back and forth, I think his mind is so occupied at that that he can't dwell on a mistake. But at the same time, like, I think that's a great technique. But if it's like if it's us that's going to be out there – we have to distract ourselves when bad stuff happens. And I'm a big proponent of that, man. Talk about, you know, who you think is going to be in the Super Bowl or, you know, when sports are going to come back or whatever it's going to be. But distract yourself. Get yourself away from being stuck inside your own head. Well, and that's that's it exactly. And, and, and again, like what I try to tell my players, you know, especially the younger ones, like if you've got a caddy, you know, like Kurt Koala, caddy, caddy for Cameron Champ, like Kurt's – playing Cameron like a video game. And so Cameron, you just, you unplug dude. And I'm going to get up there and I'm going to tell you exactly what to do. Just like Paul, you're talking about with Webb yesterday. I loved it. It was either yesterday or the day before where he's like, he backed off a shot and he's like, you know what? Let's adjust our land yard by our landing target by one yard also. And Webb can really just unplug and just play golf. And if you trust your caddy, you know, and, and sure, Paul's going to make some mistakes too along the way. And if you can give your guy a little bit of room to make a mistake or two here or there, but then you have total trust. So the, the players that I work with that are younger that don't have a caddy, what I try to tell them is since with decade, we're, you know, you know when you hit a tee shot, I'm going to have about 130 to 50 left. So we've got this baseline number. You can literally figure out what your target's going to be relative to the whole location while the other players in your group are teeing off or while you're walking the first 20 yards you can literally have your target selected before you even get to the ball and then zone out, 
talk about sports, talk about anything. And if you can't figure out something else to talk about and your mind is ruminating on my stance in the tournament, um, my, you know, I need to get to the top 30 to make enough money to keep my card. I need to qualify for the New York mid-am, any of these things. If you can't stop that, then that's where meditating and at least yeah. trying to follow your breath counting. Navy SEAL, box breathing, you know, two beats in, two beats of holding breath, two beats exhale, two beats, whatever your structure is, box breathing is is controlling. So then it's just like, at least I'm thinking about something else. And that's that's really what meditation brings to you is the ability to understand that you can at least try to think about something else. It's it again, it really is incorrectly. People think meditation is about having no thoughts. It's not that it's about learning to not control your thoughts, but recognize when they're ruminating. Yeah. And it's funny because I've posted, I've, I've been playing a lot of Fortnite during the pandemic and there's a couple of guys that I watch, you know, pro Fortnite players and they always talk about like, watch this, I can get this guy to panic. And when he panics, they make bad decisions. That's all they're trying to do is get the opponent to panic. In golf, there isn't an opponent. It really is the whole adage of you're playing yourself. It is. And so if you're sitting there ruminating on a thought, it's just like you've got Michael Jordan sitting there heckling you. You're heckling yourself. I mean, it's, it's just, again, this is why I love these conversations. I've never really viewed it in that light. But essentially, you're heckling yourself when you're ruminating on a thought. And that's probably a pretty bad idea. And I think there's a more difficult than Michael Jordan, well, possibly. Because if I'm playing one-on-one, we're playing one-on-one against our mind. But the difficult part is my mind knows what I'm going to be doing. It has that strategic advantage. So if I know I'm going to be going to my right, boy, it is really tough to beat that opponent. That's the real difficult about it. Because I see like the obsessiveness, the ruminating happens all the time out there because when it's in a productive and a learning environment trying to get better, it helps us, right? I have to think about it and I think about it in the shower and then it kind of comes to me when I'm not thinking about it. The problem is, is when mm-hmm. we only have that limited number of time and we got no bandwidth to be able to handle that stuff. I remember this, man, it was like 2011 uh, practice round with, um, with Webb and Paul and Paul was just frankly candid with me. He just said, Webb's the most mentally tough player I've ever worked with. I said, really? I said, because, you know, you caddy for VJ, you know, and I was like, you had majors there. And he's like, without a doubt, man, you're going to be seeing this. It's 2011. And without a doubt, man, I mean, because you see somebody, I think, like Webb struggle with that putting and then to be able to come back, man. I mean, that's that's that ultimate test. Sorry for the tangent, man. I know you get going for hours. No. Well, I mean, again, but just like you said, like that, you know, Webb has a, occasionally shanks it. That's a really hard thing to get out of your head. I occasionally shank it. And I played, you know, I entered Q school last year kind of as a joke. And I was four under through five in the, in the final round. And the sixth hole is a hole that I'd been hitting driver on because the wind had been off the right. And so it was kind of helping me stand my fade up. And as I got up there in the final round, the wind was off the left. And again, I obviously talk about never trying to shape the driver the other way. And as I got up there, I was like, oh, man, it's definitely not a driver today. Kind of ran back down to my, 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 my push cart on the cart path, grabbed my two iron, ran up there, teed it up, and just really was – I kind of rattled myself. I didn't take an extra second to just chill. And I cold shanked it out from seven – from six tee out into eight fairway. And I was paired with Andrew Loop. And Andrew's just like – and I'm like, oh, dude, don't worry. That's not going to phase me in the least. I've, I've, I've honestly been expecting to do it. Don't worry. And he was just like, all righty. And, and again, I was able to just 100% move on. A lot of it was like, just leave that behind. Meditate a little bit. Don't get pissed off. I've got 260 coming up for my next shot. I'd probably pay, better pay attention on this. And, and that again, that compartmentalizing of, of outcome, I really believe is – is the key to golf again? And I say this all the time, but if you had, if you'd asked me six years ago when I first created Decade and I caddy for Zalatoris when he won the U.S. Junior, then the next person I work one on one with is DeChambeau and he wins the NCAA's and U.S. Amateur. If you'd asked me then, I would have said I'm a mathematical genius. This math-based strategy is what nobody in the game gets. It's incredible. I have learned over the last five years now of teaching it to more people. Yes, that's nice but it's the change in in psychology of how they view the game and expectation management 
that's really what was going on with players like Will and Bryson, who are, again, golf attracts nothing but type A people. So you've got a whole bunch of type A people playing the only game in the sport, the only sport in the world that can't be perfected. But these little type A people think that through work ethic, they can perfect it. And it's not possible. Just getting them to think a little bit differently about outcome and expectation, shifting that type A mindset into focusing on that makes all the difference in the world. What's what's the biggest misconception about strategy that that's out there for high level? You know, it's interesting because I have co- college coaches at you know at some top ten universities that they've like, man, I have taught players to play way too aggressively, and then I've got college coaches like, man, I've had people teach people to play way too conservatively. There, any top misconception? There, I mean, I'm sure there is one. But they are literally from A to Z. Everything possible that can be wrong in thought is. And, you know, again, I understand announcers, they have to talk about something. But it just it does drive me crazy when they're like, wow, what an amazing shot to take on that pin. That's so aggressive. Like that was a pull or a push. Like there's just no chance that person. I mean, and maybe. But we don't we don't know technically without actually asking them, what was your target there? And even then, I still don't believe them. I've got players that say they aim at every single pin. Well, that's funny. It's not where the ball goes. I don't know where any one specific shot went. But when I get in these shot link, these tracker two images and I look at five tournaments, I can pretty much figure out if you're too aggressive or too conservative. And, you know, you just it, it is a lot of that, you know, do as I say, not as I or do as I do, not as I say or whatever, whatever that saying is. We're guys a lot of times. I mean, I, I have. I've looked at 20,000 shots of Tigers by hand. I would guarantee you I know more about how Tiger plays the game strategically than he does. And that's a crazy thing to say. Like, how, how is that possible? That you, you think you know more about it than what he's thinking? I do. Because I know in, in certain situations how he's going to go about it. And he's out there not playing by feel. But in theory, he's making a decision on any on every single shot, whereas I know before he even has the shot, essentially what his target's going to be. Now, why don't you do that, man? You got to have uh, the video on you, you watching the PGA events, you know, and you commentating it. And then we get people mm-hmm. that'll be dialed in watching Scott Fawcett, man. And I mean, then you're like, I, Tony, then you're I, like I, Tony I, Romo, man. Then you're you're calling the shots before it's happening. That would be cool. I'd watch that. I went, I went to I went through the mental gymnastics of it actually like two years ago. Think about doing like a simulcast for the Masters. Yeah. And I really think the biggest challenge would be, obviously, I would have to have the TV on mute, and so I'd have to have somebody telling me, "Hey, you know, they just said that he's got 167 and is hitting a nine iron here." Like to just sit there and for me to say the same thing over and over again, I think would get pretty boring pretty quick. Again, like I try to. I try to give the commentators, I try to push them a little bit to make them up their game. And guys like, you know, Frank Novello, Brandel Chambly, Craig Perks, these guys have come to my seminar to learn what it is I'm teaching to help their ability in the booth. But at the end of the day, also, it's entertainment. And they've got a dude, I can't imagine, again, how hard filling four hours of dead air every single week and not saying the same thing over and over again. I mean, I feel like people would get really bored of me really quick going, oh, yeah, he's probably aiming this thing towards the middle here. Yeah, he's probably aiming this thing towards the middle here. Like, <laughs> it would get really dull really quick. I think there's a way that we could do it, though, man. That would be uh, that'd be pretty cool. I'd be, I'd be your wingman on that, no doubt. All right. That'd be fun. Well, um, and that's honestly what, where I have thought about it is bringing in different guys for, like, 30-minute segments. I just, again, just, I've got way too many things that I, too many ideas sure. of stuff that I try, but that would be a cool one to do for the majors. I do believe. I'd do it, but uh, I'm going to be at the masters this year, man. So I'll, uh, I'll <laughs> nice. take it for next year though. Let me ask you Perfect. another question. I mean, with, um, our fair fairways, are they more important for PGA or LPGA? I mean, everybody on the, I mean, the women on the LPGA tour really do hit it straight. I mean, they really do hit it straight and that's, you know, but they also, I mean, again, I I don't, I don't know that question. It's about two tenths of a stroke of a penalty on both tours. So I would say it's about the same, but the vast majority of LPGA tour players hit the vast majority of fairways. And so that week to week variance, 
I mean, I'm literally making up numbers here, but a bad week might be 10% different than a great week. Whereas the PGA Tour, you can have a guy accidentally run a little hot with the driver. Like it was a Brendan Todd last week, I think, that had hit every fairway but one halfway through the on Sunday. I don't know what he wound up with, but I mean, he doesn't hit the ball that straight, obviously, but he had an an incredible week with the driver for whatever reason. Um, So I would say, I guess, the PGA Tour, but I don't think that's anything other than an opinion based on nothing. Yeah. I've got a. I'm glad I was able to ask a couple questions, man, that kind of stumped the wizard here a little bit, man. I was like, all right, good, man. I mean, I try to do my research when it comes to these. That's important. I've got. Well, the key is honestly, like, if, if I say something, and this is it's it's a fault of mine, but if I say something and I say I'm right, I guarantee you I'm right. Yeah. Very rarely. Now that said, I also will say quite often on Twitter or Facebook, this isn't my area of expertise. I will give you a a modifier of I'm pretty sure this is right, but this is also my opinion. But there are certain things when it comes down to data and stats, like it's just, it's just not even, it's not even arguable. And if you're arguing, you're just being hard headed. Um, you just, you just, you don't want me to be right more than you care about yourself being wrong. Yeah. And you know, that rubs people the wrong ways, unfortunately. What is it that draws your ire on, you know, social networking sites? everybody's an expert on something. You know, the no laying up guys, I don't listen to their podcast. I'm sure it's great. I've listened to the one with Harry Higgs. It's absolutely amazing. The first 40 minutes of the the no laying up podcast with Harry Higgs is absolutely about as perfect of, of a 40 minutes. And I told Harry out in Phoenix, I, you know, I was like, man, I just listened to that podcast. And I would tell you to have that thing on your phone as a voice memo to where anytime you're struggling, I would listen to it on every flight you ever take for the rest of your life. And if you're ever struggling, that's where you need to start is that 40 minutes. But now we've got a bunch of, of, of you know, I don't even know if they're any good at golf. I have not. One of them is apparently playing left-handed just because he's sick of playing bad golf right-handed. When I get golf guys like that starting to chime in on strategy and stuff that actually impacts people playing the game worse that I don't put up with. Yeah, I don't. I don't chime in with the, the the golf bro golf trip stuff. That's not my deal. I don't do it. I don't even take golf trips with my buddies. Never have. That's not my. I want to score. And so you know, like the Andy with the fried egg when he and I get into these arguments, it's because they're talking about hunting angles. You got to have this angle to that pin. That's a not a lie. It's just wrong. And and you know, Lou Stagner, my my data partner. Lou is so good with manipulating the ShotLink database that he's actually even shown that players with the proper angle have a higher scoring average than the worst angle possible. And that is logically the only explanation for that is because they they think, oh, I've got a green light special here. I'm going to get more aggressive. The shot patterns, the shotgun that we started with are so big that angle hunting is the biggest ridiculous myth of any of them. And so when I see guys throwing that out there. I am. I'm not, I don't expect Andy or the no laying up guys to ever admit in public. I'm right. Even though actually they have, but then they in DM keep on harassing me. Um, but if you start to, making people shoot worse scores, I'm going to kind of call you out on it. Cause that's not your job. Your job is entertainment and architecture. You stick to that and I won't ever bug you. Yeah. You start tipping your toes, tipping your toes in my water. And I'm just going to point out where you're wrong because I want everyone to shoot lower scores. Yeah, it's always for the peanut onlookers more than them. I don't expect them to ever change. Yeah, I love it, man. Things that will draw my ire, in case you asked, is uh, is if golf commentators or any kind of commentators, when they always talk about it, motivation, like it goes way beyond motivation. That's just the base of all kind of mental toughness. Like motivation is just the baseline factor. Kind of like that hard work piece. And... Uh, <laughs> I kind of forgot what the other one was, man, but it's like, um, um, following you know, me, it draws your ire. <laughs> well, I, I like it, man, because, um, it helps keep me in check, you know, cause there's a lot of times like when people start talking about stuff like they don't know, um, you know, to, to be able to calm out on it, like we said, it's like, 
so much gets lost in translation. I can be right about this or I can kind of be happy. And what's more important to me is my family and my business rather than making sure this person knows that I'm right. And yeah. yours is a little bit different because there is not a lot of, well, there's some gray, but there is a black and white when it comes to, you know, a lot of those points that you're making. So that's, that's why I like it, man. hundred percent. Well, you know, back to your idea of, of motivation, Jim Rohn's got a great quote where he's talking about, you know, education is the key to improvement. You've got to start with education. And, and he talks about motivation. He's like, if you take a, an idiot and you motivate him, now you've got a motivated idiot. You've got to inform people before you motivate them. You have to educate them how this works. And that's, again, in, in just in saying that, my ire really gets annoyed when people say, well, your app doesn't address this or decade doesn't address this or, yeah, but it's common sense. Like, how can you tell me from some some tweets, 250 character tweets and a few videos that I put up for free on YouTube, what it does or doesn't address? You need to actually sit through a four hour seminar or watch all 10 hours of content in the decade app before you tell me what it does or doesn't address. Obviously, I don't address everything online. I'm, you know, I, yes, I'm not necessarily trying to make money out of this, but yes, I've invested over a quarter of a million dollars in this app. I wouldn't mind getting a return on that investment. Sure. And so, yeah, I mean, it's yeah. it's just tell me what it can and can't do. And you don't know. That's probably my tilting point. I know it draws my eye. I just remembered it when when it, it's always at the beginning of the tournaments, right? When uh, or the beginning of the round, when announcers are going to cry nerves. I oh, he, he missed that one because of nerves or oh, I must be nervy. It was a nervous. Again, same thing, man. You're, you're speculating on that, but it's not like. Uh, they never bring it up in the middle of the round. How we know the nerves aren't coming then, you know, so it's always, that's 100%. the one, that, that's the one that draws me, man. One last question yeah. for you. Cause I really appreciate our time, man. I'm gonna put the links where people can follow you. Um, but what question should I be asking you that, that I'm not asking? Um, man, that's a good question actually. You stumped me again. I, you know, I, because I've done so many of these podcasts, I really feel like they really are just a great whet your appetite for what the rest of decade is. I feel like addressing expectation management, on course anger, and the, the the basis of shot patterns. That's really about the best few things that we can cover. You know, kind of in this format, obviously. I try to, you know, again, I really do try to put out as much free content as possible to, to, to people for putting up with some of the, the filling up of their timelines with arguing with people. And I do believe that you can get, you know, it's, it's the Pareto's law, the 80-20 rule. I think you can get 80% of what I teach from the online stuff, what I put out there for free. Yes, to take it to that, that highest level. I mean, you know, people, they ask me all the time, you know, they're like, I'm a 10 handicap. Is this for me? Like the worse you are, the more it's for you. I mean, that's just a fact. I mean, if I caddied for a guy with a hundred scoring average, I guarantee you I could get him around a golf course in, in 90 shots. The whole goal of this is to get my brain as a 46 year old experienced playing professional into your body as quickly as possible. It's, it's meant, you know, the, all the times when I talk about, you know, catting for Doc Redman, or I post the picture of, of DeChambeau's, you know, saying thanks for all your help, you know, decade golf. I'm not doing that to draw attention to myself, which is what the majority of people that hate me online think, you know, I'm just a self-centered asshole. I'm doing it because I want the 16-year-old Scott Fawcett to be like, huh, like five of the last six U.S. junior champions Scott works with, a five NCAA champions, like, I can't be making this stuff up. They all follow me on Twitter. Like if I sat here and posted, I worked with Bryson and I'm one of the 200 people he follows on Twitter. I can assure you he'd figure it out and be like, Hey dude, I, this isn't true. I'm just trying to let the young kids know this is how these young kids are doing it on tour. It's just a fact. And I can't apologize for facts. Sean Martin with the PGA tour posted a great, um, stat back in February before the pandemic. So we were, you know, we were only six months removed from July at the time. 
from I think it was 1986 to 2000, there were four players aged 22 years or younger that won on the PGA Tour. And at the time he tweeted that, again, I believe it was in February, he said, we've had five since July. And now, yeah, I work directly with three of them, but the other one, you know, attended Oklahoma State, which Alan Bratton, Oklahoma State head coach, he's one of my main endorsers, you know, the these young kids whether it's directly from me or not, they're being impacted by seeing the game differently. And this is how the young people are doing it. And you can hate me all you want to for saying it. I'm just saying, just telling it like it is and deal with it or don't. Just keep your head in the ground and keep finishing 40th. I don't, it's not going to make me lose any sleep. How Scott, did I get prepared from what question are you not answering me? Now that's the question. That's good, man. Scott, thank uh, thank you so much for joining us and uh, taking your time, man. I appreciate it. You got it. No, I really, uh, like I say, I always, and, and this one included, I always enjoy these conversations. Thank you for listening to the Mental Toughness Podcast. If you like what you heard today, please be sure to subscribe to our podcast. You can also check us out on Twitter at Dr. Rob Bell or visit our website at drrobbell.com.